And if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, and I'm sure you do, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 tonight. Uh, two more messages left for us in this book. Um, I almost jumped right into chapter 13 because the, the last part of chapter 12 is, is, is kind of retreading familiar ground, and, and we'll talk about kind of what's going on at this point in, in the story. Um, but I believe, there's, I believe and, and feel led that there's two uh, good messages left for us before we close this book and move on to another one. So the trouble when you get to the end of these letters uh, is that it's, it's hard to do, it's not, it, obviously it's nothing wrong with doing, but it's hard to do verse by verse uh, in these chapters because they're just not set up like the previous ones. Uh, in Paul's letters, if you look at Paul's letters kind of from, from a top-down perspective, uh, the very beginning, uh, his introductions, he's kind of just going through pleasantries. He's just saying, hey, I'm writing because of this, and he kind of says the same things every chapter, every book, right? And it's important things. It's God's Word, but it's, it's very formalities. It's, hey, grace and peace be with you. I'm the apostle writing to you from uh, this prison or this place to this church and, and so forth. He's kind of acknowledging certain people. Um, so the first couple of verses in any letter of Paul, not really part of the major message, not really part of the lesson. And then at the end of the books, uh, he kind of goes through this, a similar format uh, or a similar uh, situation where he kind of signs off and he kind of thanks a few people and he says a few things very quickly, very briefly. Uh, and, and he kind of, he's kind of all, all over the place sometimes. Um, and, and usually you can back up a chapter or a chapter and a half and see kind of where the main message ends. I think the, the most familiar example of this is the book of Romans. Uh, we all love Romans. Romans is a, is a book that you can preach basically a, an amazing message from every chapter, sometimes multiple messages from each chapter. But a lot of people, not a lot of people know, know a lot of verses from Romans 15 and 16 because the message kind of ends at the beginning of 15. And the rest of 15 and all of 16 is kind of just Paul going through, um, thanking a few people, making some references to things uh, that, that have went on. Uh, along his journey. So the same goes for the last chapter in, in the last dozen, uh, at least the last dozen of verses in most of his letters. Uh, and, and in a lot of ways, uh, 2 Corinthians, the main, the last major message, the last major lesson um, really is 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10, which is what we talked about last week. The, the last half of chapter 12 and all of 13 is really kind of Paul just kind of going, uh, kind of wa walking his way out the door, kind of closing the book up. He, he kind of uh, recaps a few things, and then he says, "Hey, it's time to time to end this letter." Um, now, I, I kind of uh, I want to. We're going to see kind of Paul repeat a few uh, of the familiar themes, especially the ones that we've talked about the last month. Um, and if you've been familiar with, if been here with us, you're familiar with the fact that that Second Corinthians is really all about um, Paul uh, Paul's fight for the soul of the Corinthian church. That the Corinthian church, um, as a whole, the people have shut the door on him and have turned away from Paul and have turned towards other false teachers. That's why you'll see him refer to these super apostles or these special apostles. He's kind of being sarcastic. They're not special. They're not super. They're just these self-proclaimed, uh, you know, uh, seeking their own glory, their own fame, people trying to get people to turn away from Paul and, and, and give the credit to them. So we've heard and we've studied the last couple of weeks, Paul has made an, an impassioned plea for the Corinthians not just to turn back to him, but but to open their hearts up to God's perfect will and, and what God wants to do with them as a church. Over the last bit of chapter 12, Paul sort of makes uh, his last effort to convince them that his motives and his ministry towards them has been from a pure 
in a sincere place. Uh, and, and there are a few verses that I wanted to zoom in tonight and focus on for a while because they may not be as memorable as what we studied last week and what we've studied throughout this book. There's some pretty amazing chapters in, in second, books, uh, second, chapters in Second Corinthians. Uh, chapter 12 is, is one of the all-time greats. Uh, but, but I think that the few that we're going to look at tonight are are important and, and really should be up there in any of our uh, in any of our memories. So we're going to begin by looking at 12 verse 14 and 15 and we're going to touch a few others along the way. Um, and I don't know where these might land with you, um, but the last couple of days, last week as I've been looking at this chapter, reading this chapter, studying this chapter, these verses have just gotten heavier and heavier on my mind as the days have went on. And uh, I just felt like this was something we needed to talk about, something that really the church uh, often doesn't address enough and that we as Christians need, need to talk about this, this particular subject. So um, chapter 12, verse number 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul says, Now for the third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, or I'm not coming for what you might can give me or what you can do for me. I'm not seeking yours, but you is what I'm looking for. As in, I'm not in this because of what y'all might can do for me or what you might can give me. I am in this because I care about you. And this is so powerful and so important for any preacher to congregation, but to really any Christian to any, to, uh, towards anyone else. That's so powerful. I do not seek yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Now, we know what that means, that children don't provide for their parents. Parents provide for their children. Paul says, hey, I am looking at y'all as if you're my children. And I'm not coming for you to give something to me. I'm coming because I have an obligation. I have a calling, a desire to give something to you. And, and, and I care for you. So it's just like a child does not provide for its parents. The parents provide for the children, not out of duty, but out of love. Verse 15, and this is, if this, this is probably a verse that you've never, I'm not, I know you've read your Bibles before, but this is a verse that we probably have practically never heard before, never studied before, but it's so powerful. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I don't know, again, where these might land with you, but I, I feel like that there, there are some verses that we ought to commit to memory and highlight and, and bookmark for f the future uh, to reference. Paul's opponents had really gotten the Corinthians crossed up regarding his motives and his legitimacy, legitimacy of his ministry. All the while, they had fallen hook, line, and sinker for these super apostles who were really just the original version of crooked televangelists who just take people for a ride for profit and for fame. We, there's plenty of those in our modern day and have been plenty for the last several decades, but that was what was going on back then too. There were these people who were just riding into town, uh, saying what people wanted them to say, and, and they were really only trying to get these people to fall for them, give them their money, and make them uh, famous in, in their own world. So Paul has appealed to them again and again on the basis of that, uh, that, that, that there's no comparing his ministry with these charlatans, that these guys are not in it for the good of the people. They're not in it for the glory of God. They're not in it uh, for the right reasons. They're only in it for what these people might give them and do for them. And Paul says that me and the people that are in ministry with me, we are the complete opposite of that. 
You can tell that it's been a painful thing for Paul to really go to his own defense over the last couple of chapters. Remember how he said things like, I feel like a fool or I speak as a fool? He's saying that to kind of uh, emphasize his, his embarrassment that he doesn't really want to do what he's doing. He doesn't want to have to go to bat for himself. He's not someone that really exalts himself or defends himself. He really doesn't want to do that, but he felt it was necessary uh, that he compare and contrast his ministry with these other false apostles' ministry in order to distinguish what's true and what isn't for us even to be able to reference. So there, there is a balance that I think every minister and every pastor struggles with as you see people fall under false teachers and misguided ideas uh, where, where, where scripture is taken out of context. You don't want to come across as jealous and just you know, take a shot at every ministry that you don't agree with. You, you don't want to come across as just trying to meddle in other churches and other people's business, but you also are very zealous for what's true and you have a, you know, you want, a, you want people to believe the right thing and it gets, it gets under your skin uh, when people go after the wrong thing. So there's a balance and there's a self-awareness that you kind of have to manage. Um, where I will always come down, and I think where Paul's coming down, uh, was that when the people he had invested in and he had suffered for, when they're being targeted and they're being fooled by these types of, of, of false apostles and false doctrines, that's when Paul rolled his sleeves up and felt it was necessary to go on the offense and in order to defend his own flock. So you don't go in someone else's yard or into someone else's house and start telling their kids how to listen and behave. But when someone comes into your house and tries to deceive your kids or mislead your kids, you do what you got to do to protect your kids, right? So Paul's not going in someone else's house and saying, hey, I need to tell y'all how to do things. People have come into his house or particularly this church that he planted and fostered and, and, and was as a father to. They've come into his house and he's upset that his own children spiritually have been misled and deceived and, 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 and are now uh, not where they should be. So that's the angle Paul is coming from. We hear him use that parental child type uh, uh, to, to, you know, metaphor uh, to, to describe the relationship that he had with the church. Now, we, we can't become paranoid or super obsessed with every church or ministry that's doing things in a way we don't approve of, of a way we disagree with. That's not healthy, and that's not really our calling. And there are times that we get super out of our own skin about things, and we get super you know, upset about what others are doing and what others aren't doing right. But, but that's just not really a good place to be, and it, and it really detracts from what God has called us to do and where God has called us to serve. So often, we can get caught up in comparing beliefs and comparing practices, but there's just nothing really good that comes out of that. But when it comes to what's going on in our house, when it comes to what's going on in our family, our spiritual family, uh, you know, we should be uh, keenly aware of what, it, it, what we, who we are and what we are doing and, and, and if we're not measuring up. So hopefully that helps you understand the reason why Paul was being so defensive and was not giving up on the Corinthians. Uh, again, listen to how tender and heartfelt he is in verse number 14. He says, I am not seeking yours, but I'm seeking you. Now, that might not sound very powerful to us in and of itself, but I want to just talk about that for a minute. He's saying, I'm not doing this for what you can do for me. I'm doing this solely because I care for you. Now, you, you might say, well, man, I don't know if I've had the same kind of heart that Paul's got. If you're going to be in ministry and you're going to be effective in ministry, this is where we've got to get to. And this is where we got to pray God get, to all, God get us all to. Paul says, I, I, this is why I am in ministry. I am not doing it for what you can do for me. I am doing this for you. 
I tell you, this is so crucial for any of us as we interact with others in the church, especially those who may not be where we are, where we aspire to be with the Lord, uh, because it, it, it changes how we view people. And, and let me explain. There are two ways that we can look at each other in the church, that we can look at church members uh, that, that may be uh, not where we are, and, and we're not perfect, but we're trying to be where we should be, and there's others that kind of are on the fringe, there's others that aren't really carrying their weight, there's plenty that aren't here that should be here, there's plenty of our, people that are lost that don't go to church at all, that, that, that it, we can often get kind of so divided up and we can often begin to categorize people based on where they are and where they aren't with the Lord, but it's important that we understand that we can either view people as if they're commodities or assets to the church, or we can see them as brothers and sisters, and the family of God. Obviously, I think we understand the latter is what we are all to see each other as, that nobody's a commodity, no one is an asset. And that's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. I don't look at y'all as a cog in the wheel. I don't look at y'all as just some, you know, as just one of the many bodies that come into places like this. You guys are family to me. And, and to Paul, they're his children, but to us, they're our brothers and our sisters. It's so important. And, and, and I think this is, this is something that we don't talk enough about. Out. It's so important that we protect our hearts in terms of how we see fellow church members, how we see potential church members, especially those like the Corinthians who most of them were not where they should be with the Lord. Many of them were not pulling their weight as they should. Many of them had fallen away from where God wanted them to go. As key members, our own passion and our own sincerity is vulnerable if we don't guard our hearts on this issue. So this is the reason I think Paul talks about this in this book. Because he knows years and years from now, years and years from when he was writing this book, there's going to be churches full of people that, that, that often lose sight of their calling and lose sight and, and, and actually lose their passion and their sincerity because they do not guard their heart on this crucial issue. The, the Apostle Paul models this for us. He's showing us how not to see people and how to see people. So here's what I think we should hear tonight. People are not numbers. They're not the offerings they bring. They're not the labor they do or don't do. People that come into buildings like this, they are souls. People for whom Christ died. Souls that God loves. People that God wants to see part of his body. The minute we forget this, and the minute we forget this as a church, if we only care about numbers and meeting metrics and balancing budgets, then we turn into a business, we turn into a club, that only cares about bills being paid and dues being fulfilled. So here's the takeaway. We are never going to reach outsiders or impact casual insiders if we don't properly and effectively value them. Now, if, if you want to know who, who is he preaching this to, I'm preaching this to me. So this, this is a message to me, keeping me in check with where I need to be as a pastor, because this is really about pastors to congregations. But I think I think y'all can benefit from this. So if this is just a me tonight, then hey, I just did all this work for me, that's fine. You guys get to listen. But I think all of us can benefit from this 
Because we as a church, we are called to reach outsiders, but we're also called to impact those casual insiders who may come and may leave quickly. They come and they just observe, but they never get involved. That's most churches. Even a church of 30 people, a church of 300 people, there's always about 10 to 20% that do all the work and pay all the bills and carry all the weight. There's always a much larger percentage of people who are just observing. They're just casually passing through. And there's an even greater percentage of people who never even come in the doors, right? Or may show up when you're doing something, you know, outside of, of, of worship, right? Where you can draw big crowds with food and with festivals and, and, and things like that. We as a church must guard our hearts on this very thing. Because if we're going to reach outsiders and impact those insiders that are on the fringe, we must properly and effectively value people. And, and there's a reason why we struggle with this. There's a reason why I struggle with this. There's a reason why all of us struggle with this. So let me say a few things out loud that maybe you've never realized and maybe is the farthest thing from true about you. But I have a hunch that in most conservative, most uh, evangelical Baptist churches, beyond us even, but I'm speaking to what I'm aware of, in most churches like ours, this is something that is very, very, very uh, a, a high potential, a high risk that we must be on guard for. Dedicated, faithful church members can easily become cynical, bitter, and disheartened. And, and it happens naturally. It happens for good reason or, or for good excuses, I'll say. As in, we can become Pharisees if we don't guard our hearts. What I mean by this is that we get frustrated and we get downcast and we get, uh, you know, discouraged when we feel like that there aren't as many doing what we are trying our best to do. That, that goes on in any given church, in, in, especially in today's world. It went on in Paul's day, but it goes on in our day a lot. We easily get frustrated. We become self-righteous, and we lose our passion and our zeal and our sincerity for ministry. So, so here's the solution before I give you all the details. We must be quick to admit and pray for God to keep our hearts soft, to keep our hearts pure and hopeful, because this is not something we can afford to go through. Our passion and sincerity, our passion and sincerity to reach people and make a difference in lives for God is everything. I want you to hear that. Our, our passion and sincerity to reach people and impact people's lives in a positive way for God, our passion, as in our determination, in our delight, in our zeal, in our sincerity to reach people and impact people and win people to Jesus and see people grow in their faith, that is everything. And if we lose this, if we become cynical about this, if we give up on this, we lose our entire sense of purpose. A church can be full of holy, devoted people, but if that same church loses its devotion or its determination to reach the lost, if it becomes more angry and bitter towards lost and backslidden people, then they are compassionate for those same people. Then that church is dead. Hear me very clearly. A church can be full and singing out loud and be full and be as holy as can be. But if that church has lost its desire to win the lost and impact those that have fallen away, that church is dead. No matter how rich it is, squeaky clean it is, 
It's dead. The life of a church, the life, the vitality of a church is how passionate are we to win lost people and to reach people that have fallen away. That is the lifeblood of the church. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that. In today's world, most of our churches are far from full and that reality can only exacerbate the problem and cause us to make more excuses and make us more aggravated. I, I think it's good advice for how we, I think this is good advice for how you deal with political things too, but again, I don't care about how you manage that part of your life. That's just some free advice. I am accountable for how you represent Jesus and how you serve Jesus. So here's my plea to you. We have got to be like Paul and have a heart for the lost, the backslider, and the lackluster believer as in the person that just doesn't shine as bright as they should. You know that person. We know that person, right? And it's easy to get focused on that person and say, why aren't they doing better? When we uh, maybe lose sight of who we are and what we should be doing. Jesus You've probably read the parables of Jesus again and again and again. You've probably noticed that he often targeted religious people with his parables. He wasn't trying to pick on us. He's just trying to keep us honest and hopefully protect us from this inevitable drift. So I want you to put a bookmark here in Corinthians and turn with me to Matthew 20. Matthew 20, this is the first of two parables we're going to look at where Jesus uh, talks about something that I think is very relevant to what Paul what Paul is trying to talk to us about, what Paul is trying to teach us about, that if we're going to retain a heart like Paul's or even for the first time obtain a heart like Paul's, we've got to wrestle with this tension that we often face towards outsiders, towards the backsliding backslidden people towards the lackluster believers. And this isn't to elevate any of us. This is to make us all, just to say what we often won't say out loud. We don't know if we can say this out loud, that we get frustrated about people more than we are compassionate for people. We get angry more than we do love people. So listen to this parable. We're gonna read right through it. I think y'all know this parable. Probably you've heard it before, but I think it's impactful when we hear it all together. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you must go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. So when the evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last and to the first. And when they, those that came were hired about the 11th hour, they received each a Daenerys. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. And they received likewise each a Daenerys. And when they received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I am doing you no wrong. That's the emphasis. I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a Daenerys? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this to the last man, give to the last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil? Or jealous is the phrase there. 
an evil eye is the, the, the Hebrew or the Greek for jealousy. Is your eye evil because I am good? So, this, so the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. So this is a classic example of the people that worked all day got jealous of the people that worked for one hour. They were angry. They were angry that the master paid those latecomers, those stragglers, the same that he paid them. So let me just talk about a few things here. Satan, Satan will use others' disobedience and shortcomings to empty us of our joy and fill us with jealousy. I want to, this is a big deal. What does Jesus say in verse number 13? Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Verse 14, take what is yours and go your way. As, he say, as in, uh, he's saying to them, I have given you a life of a fulfilled life of knowing me, of being blessed by me, and of serving me. You should be happy you got in early and you should be the most delightful person on the planet. Why have you allowed Satan to take your joy and replace it with jealousy, with anger. Why, why is it that often as religious people, as church people, we, we're more angry than we are joyful? And you know what? We blame people. Well, if they did more, I'd be happy. Well, are you going to let your joy be held hostage by somebody else when that person didn't give you joy and that person couldn't give you joy? Your joy came from Jesus. So why, why are you not full of joy based on what he gave you? Isn't, it, isn't this so? Think about how, how, how we as a nation react when things don't go the way we want them to go. We get angry, don't we? Even if we've got everything going the way we needed to go in our little corner of the world, we get angry. And what is the devil doing? What does Satan do to us in the church? He gets you to trade your joy for jealousy. So here's the message. If God called you early and you served him often, rejoice and be glad. Enjoy your relationship with Jesus. Pray that others find one too. But don't forfeit your relationship with God over the lack of relationship that other people exhibit. It's so important that we retain our joy so that others want what we have. If we go about angry over what others don't have and never uh, enjoying what we do have, what good does that do for anyone? It makes no sense. But it happens so much in the church. We must remain genuinely grateful and excited, uh, genuinely excited and grateful about Jesus and pray that others follow suit. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, I'm not here for what you can do for me. I'm here for you. I love you. I have a passion for you. And we as a people must have a passion for others coming to know the Lord. But we cannot allow their shortcomings or their lack of obedience or their backsliding uh, 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 you know, lifestyles. We cannot allow those things to take away from what we have in Christ. But also cause us to see them in a way that isn't healthy for anybody 
Another parable that comes to mind on the subject is from Luke 15. We're all familiar with the stories that Luke, Jesus tells in Luke 15. A shepherd loses a sheep. He goes and finds the sheep. A woman loses a coin. She goes and finds the coin. And then a father loses a son. But we know how it works with people. People don't just get lost. People choose to be lost, don't they? Or do they? Well, the prodigal son, as the story goes, goes away and wastes his living on some riotous, uh, uh, indulgent lifestyle to the point that he is poor and living with the pigs. And he comes to his senses and realizes that the servants in his father's house have it better than he does. So he decides he will get up and go to his father and plea for mercy, if only to be accepted as a slave. But the story isn't just about the prodigal son. The story is about the older brother, who was none too pleased. Not just when his brother left, but when his brother came back. Turn with me to Luke 15, verse number 17. Let's read this familiar story. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to my father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Make me like one of your hired servants. I'm no longer to be called a son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer be worthy to be called your son. Of course, there was more to the speech, but the father didn't need to hear the speech. He interrupts him and says, Bring out the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead. He's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. But someone wasn't so merry, were they? Now his older son was in the field, and as he drew, came and drew near to the house, he heard the music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. There was only one, and ready for, prepared for a banquet. And this was the reason why his father had the banquet. So it says in verse 28, but he was angry, and he would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandments at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat, much less the fatted calf, that I may be merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours, doesn't even call him his brother, as soon as this son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. He said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. Don't you see a similarity in these two parables? Son, since when did your brother affect your relationship with me? It didn't, did it? Yet you've allowed that anger and this whatever to fester and you've allowed your anger towards him to put distance between me and you. It makes no sense. The father says, it's right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
So here's the thing. Do you think the older brother only got angry when the little brother showed back up? No. He was angry the whole time he was gone. And you would say, we got a reason to be angry. Just like the Pharisees. They were always complaining to Jesus about the sinners and tax collectors. And when Jesus started saying, come on over, they got even more angry. But my point is this. This is the whole point of this exercise. So if, if you hear anything, just hear this. You might not agree with me, but I think it's scriptural. If we're angry at people, if we're angry at people for being lost, we're going to find a reason to be angry at them even after they get saved or repent. If our emotion towards people who are not where they should be with the Lord, if our emotion towards people in the church, on the side of the church, who don't come to church, if our emotion towards people is anger, it's not going to change when they get saved. You say, well, Justin, I'm just, if they get saved, I love them. The Bible doesn't say love people when they change. See where we're going with this? Remember the story of Jonah? Jonah hated the people of Nineveh before he was called. And guess what happened after he went reluctantly and preached the gospel and they got saved? It displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Proof that if you're angry at people before they get saved, you're not going to become unangry once they get saved. You know why? James tells us this reason. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So what's the solution? Get rid of the anger. That's the solution. So here's, here's why we've run in circles for a couple, for a little bit. If our posture towards people in the church that are not where they should be, and there's plenty that aren't, if our posture towards people not in church, if our posture towards people who aren't where they should be with God is anger, we need to fix the anger problem. So if we don't have love and compassion for people as they are at their worst, we'll never accept them, no matter what. You know, this is why it's a big deal for Paul to say, I did not come for what you might do in response to me. I showed up for you just as you are. Does that make sense? It's a big deal for Paul to say, I am in this for you because I love you as you are. I'm not angry at you. I've never been angry at you. I'm not frustrated or mad at you, even though I might could be and many are. I am in this because I am seeking you and your good. I value you. My heart is for you. And church, this must be our prayer. If we can't think about loving someone before because we're sizing them up, we've got all the things that they've done wrong listed out, we're critiquing them, then that should tell us and that should tell me that we need, I need to pray for God to give me a heart like the Apostle Paul's. I get it. It's, we live in a world where it's easy to get angry at people. There's a lot to get angry about. We blame the entire other side of the country politically for, what they, for the wrong they've called on for us to suffer on behalf of. I get it. We do this in our churches. We blame the reason the church isn't where it should be on all the people not doing what they should do. 
and that's made us angry and mad and bitter. And are we any better for it? If that's how we remain, we'll never, ever love people like we should. You say, well, Justin, you know, what's the solution? The solution is that we must ask God to give us a heart like Paul had, like Jesus had. Matthew 9, the scripture says that he saw the crowds. He had compassion for them. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to the disciples, the harvest is plenty. The laborers are few. Pray earnestly the Lord of the harvest. Send out laborers into the harvest. And let me just say this. If you go out angry, no one wants anything to do with angry people, bitter people, mad people. Right? Nobody likes that. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying this because we as a people have to protect our hearts. Because if we're more angry than we are loving, if we're more aggravated than we are compassionate, if we're more bitter than we are concerned and burdened, how are we ever going to win people to Jesus? What did Jesus, I know this is always the trump card, but what did Jesus pray on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, there's two options here. Either Jesus is lying, which he doesn't lie. Because we think they know what they're doing, don't we? But apparently, the way our little minds work, compared to how God sees things, it's like we just don't know what we're doing. And you know what makes that, that, that request sting even worse? While he's praying for God to forgive them, They're literally cutting up his garment and selling it for profit. They knew what they were doing. They were making mockery of Jesus and wanting to sell his stuff off to people that thought he would be, you know, that that, that recognized him and and thought a lot of him. I mean, what kind of scoundrels can can you get worse than these people? And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You know what probably impacted Paul's heart more than anything? Maybe even more than that story about Jesus, which is obviously a big deal. Remember when Stephen was rejected by the religious leaders? He preached a message about how God had been building up toward this, the church since the beginning of time. He goes through Moses, he goes to David, he goes through the whole Old Testament and he talks about Jesus and they get angry at him. And the scripture says that they, um, they cast him out of the city and they stoned him and the witness laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul because Saul of Tarsus, yeah, the same Saul who became Paul, Saul of Tarsus is leading the charge against Stephen. He's the one ordering them to throw the stones harder and faster without mercy. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Standing there with his blood on his hands, Saul of Tarsus heard this, and there's no question that this never left his mind. Here's a man that he literally was murdering, praying that God forgive him of that very sin. Church, none of us have any room to talk or fuss or complain until we have a heart like Stephen. Let me be be real with you as we wrap up. 
as a pastor, I put my heart and soul into every message, every ministry we endeavor into. But let me open up a little bit about pastors. I don't know a lot of them, but I know enough about us that I can speak on this, I think, authoritatively. Every single week, every single pastor doing this for the right reasons is hit with something that attempts to steal their joy and make them lose their joy and make them very angry. Every week, there's a, pa- a, a pastors deal with people that say, oh, I'm not going to be there today. Oh, I, I can't come today. I've got other better things to do. Every week, a different group of people say that to every pastor. And that, meanwhile, the pastor has put everything he had into that week's message, per- believing that it's for their good and for God's, it's God's message for them. Every week, someone can listen to you, pour your guts out for 40 minutes and still have something to say that they're not happy about afterwards. You may never please everyone, but as a pastor, you desperately wish you could, and you cry your eyes out, hoping that you might can. Sometimes you'll have members and visitors that you do everything you could ever, they could ever ask of you, and one week they just decide to quit without any reason at all. As a pastor, it takes constant prayer to keep your heart from getting bitter and hard. You can never take anything personal, otherwise you'd be emptied of God's power and be useless before you know it. So you know, you know what my prayer is every single day in order to protect my heart? Lord, do not hold their sin against them and keep me from holding their sin against them. Not because I'm making excuses for people, but because I want to love people like Jesus loves people. I want to love people like Stephen loved people. I want to love people like Paul loved people. Back to 2 Corinthians 12, and we'll finish. Paul likens ministry to parenting. He says, for the children don't lay up for the parents, the parents for the children. As a parent, you know you don't just quit loving your kids one day because they don't obey you. You, Of course, you would never think about that. As ministers, as servants of Christ, we have to pray for God to give us the heart of the, the same kind of parental, resilient, passionate love for the lost, the backslider, and the lackluster believer. Verse 15 is so, I mean, it's, it's a megaphone from God's heart. Paul says, I will very gladly spend my life and be spent for your souls. Does that describe your posture towards the lost and unconcerned? Do you, do you see the problem? Do you see them as a problem, as a burden, as people who need to do more and are potentially holding you back? Or do you see them as people for whom God loves, for, for, that God loves, for whom Christ died? that you need to see brought into a relationship with God, that you need in your family for your good, not just their good. I mean, could you say this about unbelievers and the lost and unconcerned? I would gladly be spent. What is he saying? I would gladly have my life poured out for their souls. You know why I preach love, 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 love so much? Because I because if we, if I don't hear it, I won't pursue it and I won't obtain it. Because love is not natural. Anger is. Bitterness is. Aggravation is. But this kind of selfless, sacrificial, others first love, that's not what comes to your mind when someone makes you mad. Are we willing to gladly spend and be spent? for the lost and unconcerned. 
You know why the Apostle Paul is remembered as the greatest evangelist that ever lived? Because he was writing to a, to a group of people who had turned their backs on him, who had lied about him, who had forsaken him, had left him in prison without any of an advocate and were spreading lies about him and were trying to undo his ministry. He wrote them a letter saying, I still love you and I would give my life to see you come back to where you should be. How can we become like the Apostle Paul? You pray, Jesus, give me a heart like Paul, like Stephen, like Jesus. We stretch our arms out and say, Lord, here I am, send me. We don't complain uh, about doing or giving or serving more. We don't get upset when others don't do as much as us. We don't blame others. We love them and we reach them and we gladly spend our lives and we gladly are spent for them. If they never show interest, what do we lose? We just serve the Lord and we will be rewarded eternally for it. But if we allow others to get under our skin, we lose that reward now and later. The Apostle Paul said, let this mind among yourselves be among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And we know the mind of God. Don't we know the heart of Jesus? Uh, we, we know what Jesus did the night before he was crucified when he washed his own disciples' feet. Peter's who, who denied him. Judas who betrayed him. And Jesus says to us in John 13, 14, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. There's not a more humiliating practice than washing someone's feet in the first century. Down in verse 19 through 21, here's how Paul signs off. Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves? Do you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification, for your building up for your growth and for your good for I fear lest when I sh when I come I shall not find you such as I wish and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish lest there be contentious jealousies outbursts of wrath selfish ambitions backbitings whisperings conceit and tumults Paul's not expecting a warm welcome <laughs> but listen to this Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness. What does Paul say? I'm coming to you humbled, mourning for you, even if you do respond to me with all these awful things anger and backbiting and conceit all those things he says if y'all receive me like that that's fine but I just want you to know I'm going to go to my deathbed mourning praying for you because that's how much I love you oh that God would give us the same heart the prophet Hosea gives us this this heart this message from God God says, my people are bent on turning away from me. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. God says, they're turning away from me. Yet my compassion just gets greater and greater and greater. Let me just be honest, church. This is not what we wake up. We don't wake up with this attitude. We need to be on our hands and feet and face before God, praying God give us this kind of heart because people don't make it easy on you. And your flesh does not make it easy on you. And the devil is not going uh, to stop harassing you in order to make you 
to, to, so that you can remain jealous and angry and bitter and all those things that keep us from being useful for God. So if we want to stay effective and faithful in ministry, we must have this same kind of heart for our own joy, for others' good, for his glory. I'm not a prophet, but I don't see the world getting any better in the next decade, 20, 30, 40 years. Save a mighty revival. I don't see the world getting any closer to God on its own. But you know what I believe the message is for you and me? Don't take the devil's bait. Because you know what he loves, you know what the devil loves more than a church, than a world in sin? A church that doesn't love. Because if the church quits loving people, nobody's going to get saved. And he wins. So can we, can we take Paul's word as a, as a siren that's going off in our world today and saying to us, I don't want to be angry anymore. I don't want to be bitter. I don't want to become useless. I want to love people like Jesus and Paul and Stephen love people. I want to be compassionate. I don't want to be angry. Church, I'll tell you, I was reading this passage the other day and I just could not get over the heart of Paul on display. And I honestly said to God, God, I don't have that kind of heart. I don't have, I don't, I'm, I'm not like that. I try to be, but I'm not, I'm not close yet. And God says, well, you listen, I'll tell you how you can get there. And hopefully we've all learned a little bit about how we can get there tonight. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for just the, what, is a, what is an incredibly humbling message from Paul's, from your word, from, from the Apostle Paul. Um, God, we live in a world where we're also, we get so angry and we get so frustrated and, and we get so bent out of shape and we just, we don't make any good in, the, in, in ministry because we've lost our, our, our passion, we've lost our sincerity, we've lost our love. And God, it's so easy to be angry. It's so easy to get frustrated, but yet there Jesus was on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. There Stephen was being stoned saying, Father, forgive them. There the apostle Paul was in jail writing to a group of people that had turned away from him saying, I'm not gonna be angry at you. I'm gonna continue to pour my life out for you. So God, if they had it, we can have it. So Lord, let us not become angry toward the lost or the backsliding person or the unconcerned believer. Lord, give us this heart, this softened, melted heart that loves people and that wants to see them come to know Jesus and protect our joy that we might not would lose it as the devil tries to discourage us and trap us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.